Good evening and a very warm welcome to each and every one of you to St. Paul's as we come to the last evening in our autumn forum series exploring how to change the world and tonight focusing on togetherness. My name is Mark Oakley and it is my privilege to have been chairing the series and of course welcoming and introducing our speakers to you, which I will do in just a moment. I would, however, first especially like to welcome, although I've just been told they're about two or three minutes away, a delegation of members of the Tibetan parliament in exile. They're coming uh, here, and don't be alarmed when they probably are led to the seats down here uh, on the front row but they are exceptionally welcome, as well as friends from the Tutu Foundation UK and also from Occupy Faith, who have brought some artwork exploring the themes of this evening, which are on display on the table over there and for which we are very grateful. For those of you who haven't been to one of our events here before, let me just quickly explain how it works. In a moment, Michael Battle and Rowan Williams will speak about how we can begin together to change our world, our communities and our lives. And as they speak, if you have a question, please at any stage write it on the back of your leaflet, hold it up and it will be collected. We ask you to write down your questions like that because although we love the dome here. It does swallow up, as you can probably hear, even with this microphone uh, sound that's made under it. We'll collect questions throughout the evening until about 7.30. And please make sure, as you write it down, that it's brief and legible. We can always spot the GPs amongst you. They'll all appear before me up here on the screen and then I'll be able to put as many of them as I can to the speakers. We'll end promptly at eight and then books from the speakers in the whole series uh, will be for sale here under the dome and both of tonight's speakers will very kindly sign copies of their own books. There'll also be a chance for you to donate as you leave tonight to the Tutu Foundation UK, an organisation doing fantastic work building peace and understanding between peoples of different ethnic, religious and cultural backgrounds in the UK. And now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers. Michael Battle is a theologian and a priest, a well-known writer, speaker and retreat leader, much in demand all over the world to speak on a Christian understanding of nonviolence, peacemaking, transformation, and spirituality. He was ordained by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, having lived and worked with him for two years in South Africa, which he says was fundamental to his formation, being number two to Tutu, I suppose. <laughs> he has since served in a number of highly distinguished roles, among other things as canon theologian for the Diocese of Los Angeles, associate professor at Duke University, 
academic dean of the Virginia Theological Seminary and chaplain to both the Episcopal House of Bishops and the 2008 Lambeth Conference and also vice chair of the Gandhi Institute run by Mahatma Gandhi's grandson Aaron. His many books include Ubuntu, I in You and You in Me and Reconciliation, the Ubuntu theology of Desmond Tutu. Michael, you're very welcome here this evening. Rowan Williams was the Archbishop of Canterbury until the 31st of December last year and is now, I suspect, very much enjoying being the Master of Magdalene College, Cambridge. In fact, it is rumoured that he is seen skipping down the streets of Cambridge <laughs> towards Tesco occasionally without a care in the world. <laughs> he managed and bore the trials and I hope some joys as well of being Archbishop with such grace that at the end of serving office the General Synod to his evident embarrassment gave him a standing ovation and that was something that was repeated from one end of the church to the other. He is quite apart from this a transformative theologian, a poet, teacher and translator and the author of a dizzying number of books on practically everything from Dostoevsky to the Resurrection, by way of Narnia, the Desert Fathers and Mothers, the Aryan Heresy, and numerous other things. Formidably gifted, he also manages to be amazingly unformidable. Not all archbishops could be the inspiration for their cathedral's best-selling tribute, Teddy Bear, as he was. And to be personal for just a moment, and I can now say these things, of course, without looking as if I'm trying to get a job. <laughs> I remember a conversation I had with him about Flannery O'Connor's book, Mystery and Manners. Those two words summarize for me something very deep down in him, an inquisitive, serious, but playful dive towards the mystery of God and a relentless attempt to have the manner of life and speech that upholds the non-negotiable dignity of all those made in the image of that mystery, no matter how much they disagree with you, dislike you, or disappoint you. Such people in this world will always carry wounds, but this graced humaneness of Rowan Williams has taught me that as a Christian, our duty is always to dispel illusions but without becoming disillusioned, to think critically and to try to live faithfully. And it's a great honour to have both he and Michael with us here tonight. And now I invite Michael to speak to us. I'd like to thank you, Mark, for such a wonderful introduction and for inviting me into this forum of how to change the world. I want to echo your wonderful remarks about Archbishop Rowan, 
someone I've admired for much of my life and an honor to share this forum with. How we can change the world, especially in this context of how do we do that together? I want to offer some frames of reference and the, the chief frame of reference is an African concept called Ubuntu. And I want to offer some benefits, benefits that are hard for us in the Western world to appreciate. So the first frame of reference is actually some humor, but it's helping to set the stage for why I think we changed the world together. There were three sons who came into a large amount of money. They got together, and the first one said, I'm going to buy mom a big house. The second one said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do you one better. I'm going to buy her this, the most expensive car on the planet and hire a driver. And the third one said, no, I've got all of you beat. There's an African parrot that has been trained by these wise spiritual Christian leaders to know every chapter and verse in the Bible. And they took 12 years to train this parrot. And all mom has to do is name a chapter and a verse and the parrot will recite it. Well, the mom received these gifts and wrote three thank you letters. Dear Gerald, the house is too big. Thank you for your intentions, but I'm too old to clean it. Dear Ronald, I can't drive anymore because of medical reasons. And the driver is so rude, but thank you for your intentions. Dear John, You've always been my favorite child. You've always known what I've wanted. The chicken was delicious. <laughs> this first frame of reference is about gift. We often need to be trained in the appreciation of gift. And I think and believe that the greatest gift is the other. But for us, I would argue, and I consider myself a Western person, being an African-American, it's very difficult to see the other as a gift. I think we also have to be trained in seeing otherness, difference, as giftedness. You don't just receive a gift, you have to train yourself to place it, value it, appreciate it, know its texture, know its meaning. Ironically, gift takes work. 
The second frame of reference is an African concept similar to the need to work towards the giftedness of others. It's called Ubuntu. I'm happy to report that it's becoming more popular in the world. Archbishop Tutu and President Nelson Mandela are some of the most famous articulators of Ubuntu. Ubuntu is really a frame of reference that comes from the Bantu peoples of sub-Saharan Africa. For us, it is superficially defined as community. But for us in the Western world, it's difficult for us to know the depth of Ubuntu because our definitions of Ubuntu are usually affinity groups or an aggregation of individuals. It's very difficult for us to get to the deeply textured meaning of Ubuntu. There's a proverb that helps us to some extent. And the proverb is, a person is a person through other persons. That identity is interdependently known. So Ubuntu is community, but it's the kind of community in which identity is formed through community. Even goes to a point for Western ears that's difficult to hear that my identity is dependent upon yours. And Ubuntu is in contrast to the Western European enlightenment ways of seeing self, especially through the Western great proverb of, I think, therefore I am. For Ubuntu, it's different. I am because we are. And because we are, I am. The frame of reference for us for Ubuntu is similar to the mother eating the parrot. It's very difficult for us to appreciate this African frame of reference because sometimes it smells like dysfunction. How could I be dependent on another? That seems dysfunctional, codependence. But I would argue that Ubuntu gives us entree into answering this question of how to change the world together. And then lastly, because of my own vocation as a Christian, I think Ubuntu can be seen in religion. And because of my own context, I see it particularly in Christian faith. Jesus, for example, says, wherever two or three gather, I am there in their midst, Matthew chapter 18. Now I'm sounding like the African parrot. <laughs> and then St. Paul in Romans chapter 12 says, for as in one body, we have many members and not all the members have the same function 
So we who are many are one body and individually we are members of one another. That's Ubuntu. And someone more expert at articulating what I'm about to say is sitting here. The very concept of God is Ubuntu. The very persons of God, the way that there is one substance, one God, is because of the relationality that a person is a person through the persons of God. So the frames of reference that I've mentioned, I think are all shaped by the landscape of the framework that comes from Africa of Ubuntu. Now the benefits in closing. I think Ubuntu, if we're gonna think about how we can change the world together, Ubuntu is not some simple utopian way of seeing the world. I think there are actually measurable benefits to Ubuntu, and I wanna name three. First, I think Ubuntu helps religion. All of us know that religion has often gotten in the way of helping us to change the world beneficially. But I think especially for Christian religion, Ubuntu offers a frame of reference not to simply long for personal salvation. Ubuntu invites us into the deeper mysteries that as a Christian, I cannot be a Christian alone. It offers the mysteries of Archbishop Tutu, one of his latest books, God is Not a Christian. It offers the wisdom that I learned in one of Archbishop Rowan's classes when I was his student at Yale. We were worried about this Russian theologian, I think it was Nicholas, Nicholas Berdyev, I'm not sure, but this Russian theologian was worried about heaven. How could he be in heaven? conscious of someone weeping, someone gnashing their teeth? How could he be fully satisfied, completely full of all that could contain his need, knowing, conscious of someone who was suffering? How could he ex existentially be in heaven, knowing someone else, the other, is in hell? And I doubt you remember, Rowan, but I raised a hand in the class at that day and I said, well, you know, some people's concept of heaven is based upon people being in hell. The joy, the, the knowledge of knowing that an enemy is suffering brings enjoyment to some people. But Ubuntu doesn't allow that frame of reference. It doesn't simply articulate a personal salvation. It articulates a salvation in which I am dependent on your salvation to be saved. And I think this goes a long way in ecumenical and interreligious ways in which we can have conversations. The second benefit is, I think, from social science. Social science now is able to measure a person's health more so 
then pharmaceuticals, and, and in many cases, doctor's visits, simply by looking at who your friends are, looking at if you are in community. They're able to measure a person's physical health based upon their communal way of being. They can measure your blood pressure, your cholesterol levels, your resilience to addictions, your ability to eat right and have the right body mass and weight simply by measuring if you are in community. Looking to see if those who are around you are also have good blood pressure and good cholesterol levels. The ways that we are socially interacted creates health. Even our social scientists are saying today, that's Ubuntu. And then I think lastly, the benefit is political, and you could even say economic. If we're trying to answer the question, how can we change the world together, oftentimes we, we hide behind the excuse of saying that I'm not a saint or I'm not a hero, but it is an excuse, and I've heard many people say it, that I'm not Mother Teresa or I'm not Nelson Mandela. But I think Ubuntu teaches us a great deal about political interaction. And I use a case study of, of South Africa, from which Ubuntu has been articulated the most from these days. South Africa produced a political experiment unlike any other nation state has done. They produced the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There have been other commissions similar to it. They've had some in Chile and El Salvador, Panama, but those have mostly been truth commissions. And the amnesty has not been true amnesty. But South Africa has produced a truth and reconciliation commission. And I think it comes from that framework of Ubuntu in which the leaders of that country got together and made decisions that they did not want perpetual war. They did not want South Africa to be a Middle East. They made decisions that they would practice not retributive justice, but restorative justice. That they would practice a way of bringing affinity groups together and ways in which there could be a reference point for those from different and even violent points of view. That political experiment has been replicated in other parts of the world. And I think it shows us ways in which we can practice longevity and quality of existence through political interactions. In closing, I think if we want to do Ubuntu, if we want to practice it, and most of all appreciate it, there has to be a way in which we do that together. And as Western people, I even claim we can do it as well.
We know in our hearts we cannot be a person by ourselves. It's obvious. We know in our hearts that if we're going to change the world, there has to be the interaction of gifts. There has to be the way in which something is greater than the sum of our parts. And I think that's why we're here. Rather, as I feared, Michael has already said all the important things there are to say on this subject, and you'll have to bear with just a few academic footnotes from um, a newly reconstructed academic. I'd like to begin with just two brief comments arising out of things you said, Michael. One is actually to go back to that moment in Yale 23 years ago. (laughs) I think if you'd asked me about that now, I would have said that the person who believes they are in heaven and is relishing the loss or suffering of another is probably in hell without noticing it. The second is to pick up one of those elements in a much older tradition that has helped Christians make some sense of the Ubuntu concept that you outline. And it's something that comes from a Greek Christian writer of the second Christian century who asks, what is it that's distinctive about the love of God The love of God is love that does not arise just out of having things in common, he replies. God doesn't love us because we have so much in common with God. On the contrary, we are finite, God is infinite. We are a mess, God isn't. Spell it out however you like. But the point is that God's love creates common life. It doesn't arise out of a common life we already have. And the challenge, I think, in what you've said and the challenge in the whole of this enterprise is how do we build common life with those we think we have nothing in common with? How do we love creatively? It was Jesus, after all, who said that it's perfectly easy to love people like you. Everybody does that. What is new about the gospel is an energy and a power that allows us, enables us, to love those who are not like us and whom we may not like. But those are just two immediate responses to the things you were outlining. And I'd like, in the rest of this brief presentation, just to say a little bit more about some of those essential themes which you, Michael, have outlined for us. And I want to cast it in terms of the crucial importance for us of challenging mythology. Some years ago, the philosopher Mary Midgley 
wrote a wonderful book called The Myths We Live By. And she concentrated in that book very largely on the myths, the stories we tell ourselves about human independence from creation. We, are, we tell ourselves the story that we are not actually part of this world. A story about the independence of what goes on in our heads. A story about our freedom from an environment that we can do what we like with. But that kind of mythology is really only another version of the poisonous mythology that tells us that we're not even dependent on other human subjects. So one of the first myths that has to be challenged and dissolved is that myth that the ideal condition for human beings is non-connectedness. Non-connectedness with one another, non-connectedness with the environment. Some of you may know that there is a movement, mostly in the United States, I'm sorry to say, um, which is about transhumanity, liberating humanity from the constraints of flesh and blood, making ourselves immortal. It's an idea that has, of course, been thought of before, notably in the Garden of Eden, where it wasn't a very conspicuous success. <laughs> and I'm not holding my breath for it to be any more successful in our age. But how very interesting that people should present to themselves and to the rest of us an ideal of disconnection. As if the one thing we most wanted was not to be where we are, who we are, and what we are. Not to be in this time-bound world. Not to be the products of a history of interaction. Not to be the flesh and blood we literally are. And that particular mythology that idealizes disconnection is in fact at the root of a great many of our problems. And it doesn't take too much imagination to see how it plays out in a number of particular settings. The myth that we are or should be independent of our environment is now one which I think has been undermined pretty solidly by a lot of what's been going on in the last couple of decades. We're obliged to recognize more and more fully how bound up we are in the life of a planet of limited resources. We're obliged to recognize that the damage we do to the life of this planet is in the not very long run damage we do to our life. Similarly, a great deal of our financial crisis in the last few years has been connected to this myth of disconnection. People have wanted to uncouple the business of money-making from the serious and risky business of making things, 
including relationships, transacting with others about the world we share. And what seems to have taken us over in the last few years is a massive set of fictions about our economic life, as if it had no connection with things and persons, as if it were all about generating a series of noughts out of nothing. We need to do quite a lot of challenging of mythologies in the financial world that imagine there is an ideal state of wealth creation or profit making that has no connection with risk or relationship or actual physical reality. Why is it that we are more preoccupied, it seems, with rising house prices than with building houses? That, to my mind, crystallizes the problem at its heart. But it connects with that longing for unconnectedness. It's also, of course, something that shows itself in our corporate and individual impatience. We don't like taking time. We don't like recognizing that there are some processes in individual and shared life which simply take the time that they take. Richard Sennett, the LSE, has written a wonderful book called The Craftsman, in which he discusses those kinds of human activity which can only be themselves when they take time. And the time they take, the learning of a craft, is a time of connection where you gradually learn the contours, the way of being, of the stuff around you, and learn how your life can absorb that and express that connection in craft and in art. Time-taking has a lot to do with putting our immediate lust for gratification on the back burner. And that means having the freedom and the intelligence and the imagination to look at our immediate emotional state and say that's not all there is. And once we've learned to look at our immediate emotional state and say that's not all there is, we are open to learning, the learning that our environment imposes on us, the learning that our relationships impose on us, the learning of how to be intelligent in our emotions. Not to block off our emotions, but to be intelligent in our feeling. And we're not very good at that. So I think that one of the implications of the Ubuntu model, I am because we are, is that we need to be puncturing these fictions which so dominate us. So often we hear people talking about the real world and the pressures of the real world in finance and relationship and all sorts of things. And I feel increasingly that this um, much-discussed real world 
is more and more an illusory one, and that our most urgent need is to reconnect with our bodies, our limits, our dependence, our mutuality. All that we say and think is a cooperative venture. No child would develop a concept of the world without conversation. And at whatever point in our lives we find ourselves, learning what the world truly is depends very deeply on our willingness for conversation, which needn't be complacent or easy or convergent, can sometimes be bitterly hard work. But we do it because of a sense that we need, literally, the perspective of the other for us to be ourselves. We're supposed to be thinking in these sessions about how we change the world, a very modest ambition. And I thought that before I finished, I might just stick my neck out and venture one or two thoughts about areas where some not vastly complicated changes might open up new possibilities for us. And in good sermonic fashion, I'll just give you three. First is, I still believe, in spite of being walloped for this by the Financial Times, among others, that some sort of financial transaction tax is one of the ways in which we can express more effectively the realities as opposed to the fictions of our economic life. I'm not an economist, as many people have told me over the years, but maybe just because of that, I'm allowed to make a stupid suggestion and see where it goes. But I do believe that that still needs work and that at least discussing it brings into focus some of the fictions that are most toxic for us at the moment. The second thing is connected with the Millennium Development Goals and where exactly we hope to see those going after 2015. And again, it sounds quite simple. It's not quite so easy to put into practice, but it is a basic thing. And that is the education of women. Right across the world, in any and every culture, one of the most transforming things that can happen is the education of girls and women. They are, in so many contexts, and Michael, you'll know this from Africa as, as I do, in so many contexts, a woman given the freedom to take control of the circumstances in which she lives is a uniquely effective agent of transformation, actually delivering development at grassroots, in education, in healthcare, in microfinance. And I hope and pray that we don't lose sight of that as one of the major elements in our Millennium Development Goals. And it connects with what I was saying earlier, because of course one of the most damaging myths that we can perpetrate is that somehow the voice of half the human race doesn't matter. 
that the experience of half the human race can be disregarded at the level of decision-making and, indeed, myth-making. Can we, in some way, keep that in focus as a clear priority, with all that it involves in challenging the appalling record of gender-based violence across the world? And finally, I mentioned Mary Midgley's Myths We Live By and some of the issues about the environment that we're facing. Finally, another simple and difficult thought. How do we actually attain global coordination over climate change? How do we create and sustain a coherent international response? Thus far, it's not been impressive. There have been attempts, worthy attempts, patchily successful attempts, but we haven't cracked it. And the truth is, this is one of those issues where no religion, no state, no party, no interest group can understand or deal with the problem alone. In order to tackle this issue, we need each other. And we're back to that basic principle of I being I because we are we and you are you. Those are three thoughts which could be multiplied, of course, but seem to me to be among those things which, arising out of a challenge to the mythologies of our day, could just be done. And if we're looking at the priorities we want to push at our leaders and decision-makers, I would suggest those aren't bad places to start. And if we do that, maybe we can push through myth into truthfulness, into the right kind of realism, which is corporate and generous and hopeful. Thank you.